Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a privilege to be here, a privilege to open God's Word with us, with us, or with us, like the royal us, with you. And uh, if you have got a Bible, I want to um, encourage you to pull it out and dust it off and open it to Malachi, the book of Malachi. Um, and uh, no, no, no one's looking over your shoulder to see if you need to go to the index page to find out where Malachi is. It's one of those books that's like buried in the sort of those minor prophets. Uh, the easiest way to find it is to go to Matthew, then bounce back one book. All right, it's the it's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, it's it's wonderful being here. Uh, we are in a series uh, called the Worshiping Body, and we're talking about. Um, we're not talking about uh, life as worship, all of life, although we could. When you talk about worship, I mean, a million things come to our minds when I say the word worship. What is worship? We're not talking about uh, the worship that our lives should, should be to God, that our whole lives are lived as, a, as an act of worship. We're talking about particular worship. We're talking about the church gathered as a body in worship. We're talking about when we come together on days like this. And um, to, to call on God's name as a body, to sing to his name as a body, to remember him together with bread and wine as a body, to hear his word as a body, um, to be commissioned out into the world again as a body. We're talking about this moment, and it feels a little bit like dissecting a frog, you know. Um, I don't know, maybe it's not the right example. Um, like the thing about worship is doing it, not talking about it. So it feels a little bit funny standing a, a bit to the side of what we're doing when we come together week by week to talk about what we do when we come together. But that's what we're doing. And it's worth doing because um, if you're a person who's a pretty solid church-going Christian and you make it along to church about maybe 50 times out of 52 a year, which is most of you, I'm sure. Um, I've given two Sundays off for COVID or something like that. Over 70 years, assuming you see out your three score and ten, you will come to church three, three and a half thousand times. Three and a half thousand times. And depending on how long the preacher is and things like that, that's, I mean, put times by 1.5 for the amount of hours that you're going to spend in your life gathered in corporate worship on a Sunday. Um, it's an immense amount of time. We might as well know what, what it's about. We might as well like, have a good understanding of why it is that we do this. And that's what this series is a little, a little bit about. So, uh, I'm going to read from Malachi chapter 1. For those of you, and kids, I, yeah, so we're out of sync a little bit in Narawa here, and I didn't factor in that the kids are here. So you guys are going to be jumping today, but don't worry, mum and dad are too. And uh, um, so what you you want to go home with kids is at least one question to ask mum and dad on the way home. What the heck did Dave mean when he said this? And mum and dad will sort it out for you. Um, I'm going to do my best, but kids, lean in. Uh, I, I know we underestimate you. I was, I was always amazed. I led youth group for a number of years, and it, it, it amazed me. Um, it amazed me if, I, if we pitched the content to the older half of the youth group, how much it would call the younger guys up. And so I know I haven't prepared for you kids today. I haven't got any funny pictures to show or um, dramas or anything like that. But I just want to ask you to lean in and, and, and try and jump a little bit and try and catch some of what I'm saying. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's something here for you. Malachi is a prophet. A prophet is a covenant litigator. Okay, Prof- God made his covenant with Israel. They broke it and God would send his prophets 
to stand between God and the people and to say, here's the covenant, here's you, here's the chasm. That's a problem. That's what the prophets generally came to do. Malachi is going to do that. He has been sent by God to bring a almost a covenant lawsuit to the people of Israel. And um, he is speaking on God's behalf. So when we hear the prophets speak in the Old Testament, they sound kind of very formal. And they say lots of things like, thus says the Lord, because they're speaking on God's behalf. I'm going to read from Malachi chapter 1, and I would ask you to stand with me as I read from Malachi 1, verse 6. This is the words of the Lord to Israel by the prophet Malachi. A son honors his father... And a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you a favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Thank you, Lord, for this word. It's heavy. It's a hard word. And I thank you, Lord, that um, we have it to guide our thinking today. Uh, Lord, help us to hear. Lord, your spirit inspired this. Help, help us by your spirit to understand it. And we ask this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So worship is serious business. Worship is serious business. At least it used to be. Uh, Malachi has a tough assignment. He has to take the word of the Lord to people who have trivialized and diluted the worship they render to God. I don't know quite why they had diluted it in such a way. I think standing back and reading the rest of the book of Malachi, it seems to me that they forgot that they were worshiping God. I think they were worshiping, but they weren't worshiping God. And they forgot who it was they were standing before. Perhaps the ritual had become an end in itself. And um, they were putting a sheep on the altar. They were doing all the forms. But there was no sense of transcendency. There was no sense that they were doing this coram deo before the Lord. I think that's what must have been going on. So God has this indictment against them. And he raises this thought of a father and of a master. The fathers around here seem to have honor says God. The, the, the masters seem to have the honor of their servants, the fear of their servants. And yet God asks, where's my honor? And where's my fear? There's none of it around here. The rhetorical question comes back, how? Where, where is the honor missing? And God points to the sacrifices that cost the people nothing. The sacrifices that you're putting on my altar cost you nothing. There's, God had told them in his covenant to bring their very best. Bring your very best. Wander into your, wander into your flock 
and find the best, the spotless lamb, the healthy lamb. Bring that to the temple and offer it up gladly before the Lord. But they were wandering into their paddock and looking for the sheep that had like walked, was kept butting into the fence because it was blind. All right, they had looked for the sheep that was a bit limping a bit and was lame. They had looked at the animal and thought. I'm going to the temple today to make a sacrifice. Which animal shall I take? And there's one over there that's not quite dead, but it's going to be dead by lunchtime. I might as well take that one. All right? And all the other healthy lambs that are skipping around the paddock will leave those here. So this is what they were bringing to God. Animals that were blind, lame, sick, anemic, terrible. So uh, God then goes on to indict the priests in this terrible situation. The fault is the priests. All right? They know uh, the priests have been charged with guarding the purity of worship. They were the ones um, assessing the sacrifices. They would be the ones that would then prepare the sacrifices. They would be the ones who would take this prepared sacrifice and arrange it on the altar and send it up to God in the smoke. They were the ones who were complicit, complicit with this corrupt worship because they were administering that worship. God's assessment over all of this is to imagine trying to do the same thing with this offering by taking it to their governor. If you, if you showed up to your governor with this sheep and said, Here, I've, I've brought this sheep to you for dinner, what would your governor say? Would you have any favor from that governor? No, that governor would be highly insulted if you wanted in with the kind of sheep you're presenting to me. Okay? Do you honor your governor more than I seems to be the question hanging over this. So God finishes by asking if only there was one honorable man among you who would turn out the lights and lock the doors to the temple. He would, God would rather the fire go out on the altar than that it keeps burning with these sick, anemic, deformed sacrifices. Finally, in verse 10, God says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. It seems at least in Malachi's day, that worship was serious business. There seemed to be a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. It seemed that there was a way of offering sacrifices that were acceptable and a way of doing it that was unacceptable. There was a weightiness to worship. There was a solemnity to worship. There was a gravity to worship. And don't confuse that with, with somberness and, and sadness. We're talking about there's a weight to this thing. There's a weight to coming before God in worship. The honor shown to God in worship mattered a great deal. Now, we don't think too much about the seriousness of our worship. I, I don't, I, I, maybe we do. Maybe you do. I don't think we think about it very much at all. We think that um, worship is important, but it's not a sober thing and not a weighty thing. It's not a serious matter to come and before God and render our worship to the thrice holy God. I think there's a few reasons we don't tend to think about this very much. Number one, we live in an egalitarian culture. There's kids, number one big word to ask mum and dad when you get home. What does egalitarian mean, mum and dad? And they'll tell you all about it. Okay, we live in an egalitarian culture which flattens hierarchies. Okay, if there's a hierarchy, egalitarian cultures want to tear that thing down and make everything flat. Okay, we, that's, that's the kind of vibe of the thing. It trivializes sacred things. Nothing is sacred in an egalitarian culture. We value informality. We value 
uh, matiness. We want our prime ministers to be people we can have a barbecue with. That's what, that's what egalitarianism does to a culture. And that's the, that's the water we swim in. So we're not, we're not in a culture that fosters a sense of transcendence and weight in coming into the presence of someone who is glorious. All right, um, and and I heard it on the comments. I didn't watch I didn't watch the coronation, but a lot of people watched the coronation. I saw some stuff on online where yeah, it's the real world, isn't it? And and people were saying, look at all this pomp and ceremony. It's so ridiculous. It's so meaningless. Well, it's not. But we're in a culture that has deemed it meaningless. Our values tell us that all this ceremony and these things that are sort of have an element of transcendence and glory about them are stupid. That's what, that's what egalitarianism teaches us. We, we swim in that water. The second thing, we probably don't think too much about um, the, the soberness and the weight of what it means to come and gather before the Lord is because of the space we're doing it in. Now, I love this room. Our room in Narawa here is uh, where we, we meet and gather is similar to this one. It's a hall. Uh, it's used for all sorts of functions, this, this room. Uh, many games of badminton have been played in here. Many school assemblies have happened here. Many 21sts have been had in here. And you don't walk into this room and going, I'm coming to a place that has been set apart for the worship of the living God. That's not what you think when you come in here. You have to dial that up. And that's what partly what the call to worship does. But our the, the atmosphere... I'm saying this because, um, like it or not, we're aesthetic beings. Like we notice our surrounds. They speak to us. Uh, I walked into Notre Dame Cathedral with a bunch of tourists one day, and everyone's chatting outside. You walk into Notre Dame. I, think, I don't think you walk into it now because the roof's fallen in. But you walked in there, and everyone went quiet and whispered. No one said to do that. It's just you felt like, I'm in a, I'm in a space that calls up calls up and dials up and makes large the fact that I am small and God is big, okay? Now, this space doesn't do that, okay? I'm not picking on this room. I think it's a wonderful room as far as it goes. But we have to, we have to fight to, to get this sense of transcendence. You know, it's a hurdle. Um, thirdly, the third reason we don't think much about the seriousness of worship is that we limit our thinking about worship to what is said in the New Testament. And the New Testament says very little about it. There's a few verses scattered here and there. You could probably count them up on one hand, maybe maybe use your second hand to get halfway. There's very little said about what God thinks of worship. And so we conclude, because the New Testament says very little about it, we're free to come up with any way we like to worship as long as we mean well. But the majority of what the Bible has to teach us about worship is found in the pages before that little white divider between Malachi and Matthew. And um, I said to Liam this week, (laughs) one of my outcomes today would be to encourage you to tear out that white page in your Bible. I, I haven't got it. I tore it out a little while ago and it, it felt liberating and wonderful. Okay? <laughs> um, burn that thing. Um, God, didn't, God didn't inspire that blank page. It's something that um, people have put in there. And um, I don't really have a problem with the white page. Oh, some, don't tear your one out because it's got Matthew printed on the back side of it and you'll lose the first page of Matthew. Don't do, yeah, it's, you can keep your one. Um, it's, it's just a mental barrier. It's a mental barrier. Why is it there? And it, um, oh, we're in the New Testament now, and it's a, it's a different world. And, and that, 
is true in some senses, but it's not true in others. And sometimes that little white page is a, presents a mental arbitrary hurdle for us that we're dealing with we're dealing with a different thing in the New Testament. We're dealing with God in a different way. We're dealing with a different God almost in the New Testament versus the God that existed before that white page. It's a bit like um, on the way from Crom- if you're just north of Cromwell, if you're traveling from Wanaka down to Cromwell, down, is it Lake Dunstan there? You, you cruise along there and there's this pile of stones on the side of the road, a little area and a pile of stones, and Sarah and I were looking around and you pull over there and you have a look. And there's a sign that says this 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 marker is the 45th parallel, and I was like, "It's oh, amazing! It's the 45th parallel. What does that mean? That means you're halfway between the South Pole and the equator, okay?" And I didn't know that driving along, but now that I've, now that I know that, like on this side of that thing, here it is. Here, I'm closer to the equator. Now I'm closer to the South Pole. Yeah, and what it feels you start to think, it's co- it's, it is colder here, it's warmer here, you know? But it's a bit arbitrary, it's just an arbitrary thing that's been plonked there, and it's, it's real in some sense, but we're driving, we're driving on from there to go down to Queenstown, you're like, closer and closer to the South Pole now, um, and it's just a thing that sits in your mind, and I think that white page does that, that's why I tore it out of my Bible, it sits there as a, as a kind of like, we're in the New Testament now. We're in the New Testament, and the stuff that was on that side is kind of far away. Um, God is unchanging. God is God. He, he is the creator who flung stars into space in Genesis 1, and he is the same God we will bow down to in Revelation. So, oh, that's the second thing I'd like to do today, and no, no offense. It's Revelation, the book of Revelation. Step one, tear the white page out. Step two, it's not Revelations. It's Revelation, all right? So I have, I'm a simple man. I have simple objectives in my sermons. Um, <laughs> okay, so when we, when we consider what the whole Bible has to say on the matter of worship, because there is lots to be said before the white page, we find that there's much more than a few scattered verses here and there. Whole books of the Old Testament are dedicated to the subject. God has a tremendous amount to say about the worship of God's people rendered to him. And perhaps the reason the New Testament is so thin on the matter of worship is that most of what God wanted us to know had already been said. All right? So we're talking about what worship does. This is, that was my introduction. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the effects of worship. What, what does worship accomplish? Okay? We're, we've been told we should worship in week one. I can't remember actually how the weeks played out. But they were good. Week one... Nature of worship, what, what, is it, what does it look like, what, whatever. We did, we've talked about worship, and, and now we're up to what, what is the effect. When we do this, what happens? When we worship God together as a body, what happens? Because God is central in the worship and not in worship and not the worshiper. You might remember Liam said last week, because I don't know how you said it, Liam. Oh, it was a good part. Um, the, in worship, the customer is always right, and the customer is God in worship. Worship is something directed to him. Okay? Since God is central in worship, not the worshiper, we're going to first think about what effect worship has on the heart of God. We probably immediately want to jump to what does worship do for us? That's not, that's not the first question. The first question is what does worship, why does God require it, and what does worship do for God's heart? Well, Malachi chapter 1, it turns out 
God, when we worship, God is pleased or not? God is pleased or maybe he's not, depending on the worship. Do you remember Malachi 1? I I will not accept these sacrifices. Here you are worshipping me with this lame this lame duck, <laughs> this lame lamb, this blind lamb on the sacrifice. I, I'm not pleased with you. I'm not pleased with you. It does not ascend to me as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. It's an offense to my nostrils. Who, did, who required of you this trampling of my courts, God says in Isaiah chapter 1? Who, who summoned you in here to come in here and march into my presence with such, such a heart and such a terrible offering? So um, I'm not going to labor on that side of it. Um, but right from, right from the very first sacrifice we see in the Old Testament, the offering of Cain and Abel, we know that not, not everything that's presented to God, he is pleased with. Okay? Pure worship from sincere hearts does please God's heart. Pure worship from sincere hearts pleases God's heart. Worship brings God delight. Worship moves his heart. That is what worship does to God. Genesis 8, don't flick here, I'm just going to scramble through some verses. Genesis 8, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and and he burnt offerings, sorry, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither da, 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 da. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall never cease. God receives this worship that Noah offers to him as a pleasing sacrifice. Leviticus 2, uh, Ezekiel, what does Leviticus 2 say? They're going to come back to this. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall put oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as, a, as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God, our sacrifices of praise and worship, what we bring to God and render to him in these moments, please his heart. God is pleased when his people come to him with heartfelt worship and praise. It moves God's heart. God is not a brick. God is not a machine. He is not ChatGPT, this program. He is, he is, he's not a slot machine. He is personal. He is the tri-personal God. And God's heart is moved when his people come together as his covenant people and render their hearts to him. It moves his heart. He is pleased by that. God delights in the worship that ascends from his people. So when your children are asking you, Dad, why are you so eager to get to church today? Mum, why are you so keen to get and be to church today so early? You can say, I, I can't wait to bring delight to God's heart. That's a valid answer. When we come together, what, what outcome does worship have? It brings delight to God's heart. Um, now, I've sort of raised the question of what, what, what does, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. We don't want to sort of get it wrong. Um, uh, that's a big topic. Let me just say that Hebrews 12, is, and, so that, and if you're still doubting me on that white page business, this one is in the New Testament, all right? It says this, let us offer to God acceptable worship. It's a New Testament idea. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
for our God is a consuming fire. That's one of the few verses in the New Testament you'll find about worship. And it sounds a lot like it's reinforcing everything we learn in the Old Testament. The tenor, the pitch, the key, the baseline of New Covenant worship, the thing that carries worship that is acceptable to God is reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Malachi asked the, he had to ask the question of God, uh, God asking the question through Malachi, where is my honor? Where is my fear? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The tone, the tenor we come together with is not, um, is not flippant. It's not casual. It's not trivial. It's not low cost. Okay? We are to come with reverence and awe. And when his people have reverence and awe and render our, our bodies and our lives to him, God is pleased. I don't want you to confuse this with sobriety and somberness and frowning a lot. Okay, don't, That's not what I'm talking because God also summons us to come and to enter his courts with thanksgiving. That's not a suggestion. And by the way, that's why the first song is upbeat. That's why the first song um, is, is designed to be a song where we, we, where we, we lift our hearts in gratitude. It doesn't matter how our week has been. God has called us to come into his presence with praise and thanksgiving on our hearts. Okay, So, so we do that. that. But that doesn't mean that reverence and awe is stripped out. Grateful, joyful, praising, reverent, and full of awe. They can all go together. Okay, you can be you can be serious and you can be seriously happy. Um, I, I'm going to take a wedding next week, and uh, I know that I've t- done enough of these weddings to know that when that couple make their vows to one another, it's a serious moment. It's not that does not mean that it's not a joyful moment. They are saying serious things to one another. They're making promises. Of, of lifelong exclusive covenant commitment and that is ma- those vows are made with joy and with gladness but man is it a sober moment and that's what worship should, should carry all of those things we come into God's presence with joy we're glad to come and confess uh, before him his lordship over our lives but we come in with reverence and awe that, that, that's worship that pleases God alright so number one worship pleases God Second thing worship does when we come together is it reminds God. Worship reminds God. Um, I don't have time to develop this heaps. Uh, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Um, the sacrifices and offerings that we read about, as we, if we, if we kind of are courageous enough to go, what does the Old Testament teach us about the worship of God? The sacrifices and offerings, in particular, the ones that are eaten, function as memorials or ritual representations, not for the worshipper, but for God. Not for the worshipper, but for God. A memorial for God's sake. This messes with our heads a little bit. It makes us think that maybe God's forgetful. Does God want, why does God want these reminders? Why does God want to be reminded? Can God forget? No, we're not talking about um, forgetfulness. We're talking about memorializing something before the Lord. Establishing, establishing a moment where it's reconstituted and re, represented before God such that God sees it and is pleased. We're talking about memorializing something before the Lord. Um, 
Genesis 9, just, just so you not, I don't think I'm crazy. Uh, Genesis 9, God floods the earth, then uh, the ark, come off the ark, Noah offers his sacrifice, God is pleased, and God sets his rainbow in the sky. Who's that for? Trick question, don't answer it because you might be wrong. It's just, I'll tell you the answer, all right? Uh, you can read it. The rainbow is so that when God sees it, he will never judge the earth again. It's not for us. The, more, the rainbow is not set in the sky for us. The rainbow is set in the sky. He says, I hang my war bow in the sky so that I will see it and remember. Okay? God establishes memorials for himself. And coming together as his body is a memorial that God has established. And we remind God when we come together in worship. Uh, Joshua 4 there were memorial stones put on the side of the river. Do you remember that? But there's another pile at the bottom of the river. Who sees that one? God does. It's a memorial for God's sake. Likewise, God established the sacrifices, and in particular the sacrifices eaten by the priests and the people, peace offerings, etc., as memorials that ascend to him. They memorialize the covenant. I read Leviticus 2. When anyone brings a grain offering... Do all this stuff, da da da. Uh, Aaron shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with its frankincense. The priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That memorial is for the Lord. Leviticus 23, the Feast of Trumpets, Numbers 6, the consecration of the priests. It's okay, it's everywhere. I could put a whole show. It's the, the idea of sacrifices being memorials for the Lord is everywhere. Remember does not mean keep it in your memory. God is not forgetful. God is, God is not like me. <laughs> he doesn't remember what got told to him at breakfast time in the morning. Um, God, God remembers, but he wants memorials. He wants memorials. To memorialize means to lay hold of and appeal to God in a liturgical fashion. So, uh, yeah, I'm... I've got texts on that. I can see you kind of going, really? Um, come talk to me afterwards if you want more on that. Worship memorial, memorializes or appeals to God and calls on him to remember his covenant. That's what we do. When we come together, we're pleasing God's heart. And as we come together and we worship him, we're calling on him to remember his covenant. We're, we're sending a memorial offering to God. Um, that's why, and there's a very strong case to be made for the fact that when we eat the Lord's Supper, we do this in memorial to memorialize God. We do this in remembrance. Remember does not mean forget. I mean, if it's for, think about it. If it's for us, do this in remembrance of me. If it's for us, don't, don't, doesn't the thought of having to remember to do it remember the thing? Doesn't that remind us? If we're forgetful about Jesus' sacrifice, wouldn't remembering that we're supposed to do this thing be the remembrance but the doing of it is the memorial. The doing of it. Okay? It doesn't say, think about this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And so that translation could be a bit, could be easily done a little kind of number on. Do this to memorialize me. Cool. Just a thought. It reminds God. It pleases God. Worship reminds God. And thirdly, worship calls on God to act on our behalf. Ezekiel twenty forty one. Let's go there because it's a goodie. I believe they're all goodies. I shouldn't really carve the scripture up like that, should I? 
Ezekiel 20, on my holy mountain says, uh, declares the Lord, uh, they will offer sacrifices, there I will accept them, and there I will require you of you, your, you your, contri- your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples. There it is, pleasing aroma, I will accept you, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. This is a frequent flyer in the scriptures that when we memorialize God, God sees it and then he acts. God sees it and then he acts. Exodus 20. Oh, look, I've got stickers everywhere. and I know I'm overburdening you with scripture, but I'm saying some powerful things. <laughs> Exodus 20, 24. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I've talked to you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to, to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be memorialized, I will come to you and bless you. I will come to you and bless you. Where you do this, I will come to you and bless you. When you memorialize my name, I will come to you and bless you. That's everywhere in the Old Testament. You won't see that in the New Testament because it's been repeated enough times in the Old Testament. God didn't need to say it again. All right? I will come to you and bless you. But just in case we did miss it, in Acts chapter 13, the apostles are worshiping. They're worshiping God, which tells us, by the way, that in the New Covenant, Worship is all of life, but you can also tell when people are doing it. Okay? There's a thing that you can look at someone and go, what are they doing at the moment? They're worshipping. Okay? That was happening in Acts chapter 13. These guys were worshipping. And while they were worshipping the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. God met them in that moment and acted and commissioned and did some things. Revelation 8 is the, 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 the passage where the prayers of the saints are ascending to the throne room of heaven. The, the liturgical prayers are going up. The angel takes those prayers, mingles them with incense, throws them on the altar. There's a big fire. Then the ashes are taken off the fire and cast down onto the earth. And the next chapter about, is all about the things that happen on the earth because of those prayers that ascend into God's presence. The, the, the ascension of worship to God is not an insignificant thing. It, it summons God to act on our behalf. That's what worship does to God. Have we got time to do a couple more? Liam? Just looking at you. Liam's nodding. <laughs> Blame him, everyone. All right. So, so uh, but that's, that's the key thing. But worship does do stuff to us as well. Um, let me just run through these very briefly. Number one, worship calibrates us. Worship calibrates us. When we're, we're, we're out six days a week doing our thing and the world rubs off on us, our minds get off track. We, we, we watch the news, we get depressed, we get frustrated, just like Asaph in Psalm 74, all right? Oh, Psalm 73. Asaph had had a bad week. He was out, he looked around, he saw, he saw the rich guys eating all the fat food and their bodies were sleek and fat, all right? And he sees, he sees the oppressors getting rich on the backs of the poor, he sees all sorts of injustices in the world, Asaph, and it's a bad week. And he gets around to the Lord's Day, and he drags himself off to the temple. You think I'm making this up? Psalm, 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 Psalm 73. Um, let's get my notes here. Um, 
Uh, there's no, they, there's no pain. These, these guys, there's no pains until they die. Their life is easy. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They have no troubles. They, uh, they, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a gar- garment. You can see Asaph's had a bad time. Everyone's wicked. They had, their lives are at ease. In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. My life's really sucking here, God. And all the people who don't honor you seem to be having a great time. What's going on here? When I thought how to understand all of this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. I could not understand it. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then the whole psalm flips its head. Until I went into the sanctuary and I saw the big picture. I saw where they're going. I saw what's going to happen to those guys who dishonor your name. I saw what happens to righteous people who honor your name. I could see it all. I couldn't see it when I was on Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday. I couldn't see it there. But when I walked into the sanctuary, everything became clear. Worship, the the act of coming together in corporate worship calibrates our hearts to the way the world really is. All right? Everything during the week is militated against you to flip it upside down and make you think God's not real, the world's a mess, there's no justice anywhere, the world, watch the news, it's sad times everywhere. Um, But you come in here and the summons to worship God is a recalibration moment. It's a moment to see the world right side up and to say the kingdom is advancing, God is on his throne, none of this surprises God. And we walk out of here calibrated, okay? That's what worship does to us. The second thing that worship does to us is it forms us. Uh, you are not a static person. You are not the same today as you will be in a year. You are, you are not the same when you were 12 as you are today. You are not a static person. What's, what's forming you? Um, the scriptures make a very strong case. It sounds like it's a, is it, it's not, it's not a strong case. The worship, the scriptures state bluntly that worship is formational. We become like what we worship. We, we become like what, what we worship. If we worship wooden idols, this is Psalm 115, there's these guys out there, they carve a piece of wood and they bow down to it and it's a dead idol on the shelf and they bow down to it and those, those who worship that stuff become like the thing they're worshipping. And the alternate is true too. If we worship the Lord, we become like him. Okay, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Very famous verse, 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, that means no masks, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we behold Jesus in worship, we are, we are in the space where, where we can be transformed. Worship is formational. Worship is not something out there that does nothing to us. You become like what you worship. And the act of worshiping God is a formational thing. It forms us. It teaches us on a gut level that Jesus is Lord. Thirdly, uh, when we worship, we conduct holy war. We conduct holy war. Um, in Christian worship, we assemble to declare that Jesus is Lord and that there is no other. Okay? Uh, early Christians were, were killed for this. Early Christians were killed for doing exactly this because... When people do this, they are saying to every other authority, you are not ultimate. Okay? The early Christians did not get thrown to the lions and torn apart in, in the arena because they worshipped Jesus. They were, you could worship whoever you liked in Rome, but you had to render ultimate worship to Caesar. And that was something a Christian could never do. 
Okay? When this, so uh, we conduct holy war. And sometimes it has real physical effects on us, like people getting thrown into the arena. We assemble to say that Jesus is Lord and there is no other. And that's not a small thing to declare. Worship is a siege weapon against the gates of Hades. Remember? The, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We, just remember, gates are defensive weapons. All right? Hell is a defended area and the church is an offensive thing which the gates of hell will not stand before. The church is going to go plunder that place. That's the idea. The church is not defended the church is on the offense. Hell is the thing that needs to be defended. All right? The gates of hell will not prevail. The church is engaged in holy war. The weapons are water, bread, wine, word, and the songs of the kingdom of light. Uh, these might not seem like much to go into battle with, but they have, quote, divine power to destroy strongholds and to pull down the arrogant philosophies of man and to capture and dispense with defiant ideologies that are set up against Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing when we worship. Worship affects God, worship affects us, and worship affects the world around us. You've got to have eyes of faith to see it. You, you came here this morning and thought, we're going to sing a few tunes to Jesus, we're going to hear some guy talk up the front, and we're going to go home and have lunch. Um, is anything changing? Yes. Yes, God's heart is affected. Our, our lives are shaped and the world is being transformed because we engage in worship. Worship is warfare. Um, Psalm 8, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Who's stilling the enemy and the avenger in that verse? Babes and infants. I'll read it again. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. By the way, kids, that's why you're here. That's, by the way, kids, that's why, we don't, that's why we don't send you off when we're doing the singy bit. Because like, you're our primary weapon against the enemy and the avenger. Why would we send our strongest fighters off and, and, and like, just leave the second-rate guys <laughs> to do the fighting? We need, we, need the, we need the infants and the babes. We need the, the ones who are nursing. We need to hear those cries in the gathering because they're still the enemy and the avenger. Now, that, you'll never get that in the New Testament. If that's the, if that's the limit of our, our investigation on what worship means and what worship does, you'll never, you'll never find that. Um, that's, that's there in Psalm 8. And by the way, oh, flip, no, I won't say that. So, I'm done. Worship pleases God. Worship rem- memorializes God. It reminds him. Worship summons God to act on our behalf. Worship calibrates us. Worship forms us. And by it, we conduct the conquest of the nations for the sake of our great king. Now, I know that from time to time, you have to drag yourself here. Let's just be, we can be honest in church. Is that right? We can be, speak the truth in church. Is that right? I know that sometimes it's like, oh. And, um, and uh, I, I wonder if the significant problem when we do find it hard is we've lost sight, or maybe we've never heard 
what happens when we gather like this? What's going on? What's, what's sitting behind? What's underneath this? What's actually happening? I, I've tell the story often of the two guys digging a hole in the ground. And they're digging a hole, and one guy's pretty glum, and the other guy's pretty happy digging their hole. And some guy says, what are you doing, guy one? Well, I'm digging this stupid hole. I've been digging it for three years. Got to dig it another like 400 meters that way, and then I'm going to turn left and dig the hole that way, and then I'm just digging. My whole life is going to be digging. I'm going to die digging this hole. So I'm not very happy. I can't wait to get home. This is a terrible place to be. I have to drag myself to get here every day. Oh, this sounds pretty stink. Why are you so happy, mate? What are you doing? And the other guy says, oh, well, I'm building a cathedral. In 400 years, there's going to be a cathedral standing here. The trees are planted over there. They're little saplings at the moment, but they're, going to be, they're the rafters for the roof, and they won't be full grown until 200 years' time. And I'm engaged here with my spade because I'm part of building this cathedral. And one guy goes to work dragging his heels, hating what he's doing because all he can see that he's digging a hole. The other guy's digging the same hole, but he's like, he's got a vision about what's actually going on here. What am I actually doing? And I wonder if like, we could maybe just stir up a little bit of, like, what's the big picture here? What, why are we doing this? What's, what's being accomplished when we come together? And it might just help us when we're dragging our heels a little bit to come along to meet with God's people. Are we digging a hole? Are we building a cathedral? God's word's clear. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to make this moment a priority in our lives. We have everything in our lives um, screaming out to be a priority. And not all of it should be. We pray, Lord, that um, as we apprehend what your word says about the importance and what's happening when we come together like this, that you'd stir in our hearts a deep desire to be with God's people week by week, to come into this place with our hearts alive, bringing our very best, summoning your name, Lord, calling on your name in in, in our midst together as a people, and that with one voice, Lord, this church would offer pleasing sacrifices to you week after week, another brick in the wall, another, another foot in the trench, another, another meter for those footings of the great cathedral you are building in this world. We ask this in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen.